Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership with Scott Miller podcast. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week into our sixth year, 350 plus episodes where twice a week on Tuesdays and on Fridays, we release new episodes shining the megawatt Franklin Covey spotlight onto thought leaders from a variety of different industries and market segmentation. Sometimes we interview our own thought leaders. Perhaps it's Stephen M. R. Covey who wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, or Chris McChesney, the lead author of The Four Disciplines of Execution. In many cases, it's people outside of the firm that we may have a passion about their legacy, their content. We share common principles. And as the world's most trusted leadership company, Franklin Covey likes to have what our founder, Stephen R. Covey, called an abundance mentality, where we help to take our four-plus-decade well-earned reputation and shine the light on people that we think can make you a better leader. Today, we have an icon in the industry. His name is Bernie Swain. He is the founding partner of what is the world's largest speaking company, the Washington Speakers Bureau. If you are a CEO, a former prime minister, a former U.S. president, if you've held a cabinet position, if you are a major person of influence, no doubt, you are represented by the Washington Speakers Bureau. And although now retired from that firm, he founded with his wife and a partner living between Massachusetts and Florida, Bernie has chosen today to come and let me pick his brain on all things around speaking and influence. So if in any role in your life, as a person in the C-suite, as a parent going to a PTA meeting, as a person volunteering for your church or mosque or synagogue or in any role you are trying to influence people by speaking better, you're going to learn some great lessons from the master himself, Bernie Swain. Welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thanks for inviting me. Great to have you, sir. You are an icon in this business. Franklin Covey, of course, has generated some of the best speakers in the world. Uh, I have a great passion around public speaking and keynoting your firm, Washington Speakers Bureau, of which you are retired now, but we're a founding partner in, is one of the most iconic speakers agencies in the world. You wrote many books, this first one, What Made Me Who I Am, and you shared fascinating insights from a variety of people you represented over the decades, Terry Bradshaw, the late Madeleine Albright, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Dave Barry, Lou Holtz, Condi Rice, Tom Brokaw, Colin Powell, Tony Blair, and others. And you're writing a new book we'll talk about here in a few moments. I'd love to talk about your career. Of all the people you've represented, who do you think was the most influential speaker and storyteller and why? Well, I think there were a couple of them. First of all, I think as far as our uh, our company itself, the person who made the difference in our company the most was Ronald Reagan. Uh, we represented maybe 20, 25 people at the time. Uh, the other, there's another agency called Harry Walker Agency, and they represented Gerald Ford and big names like Henry Kissinger. We had never interviewed to, uh, to interview to get a president or a cabinet member before, and we got invited to interview Ronald Reagan for Ronald Reagan, we went through the interview process and and, uh, and after the process was over, we waited about a week and we didn't hear anything. And then they told us we, uh, most agencies would probably get invited back again. We never got invited back again. We thought kind of it was over. And two months after we interviewed, we got a telephone call saying that we had been selected to represent Ronald Reagan. 
it was amazing that he selected a fledgling company like us, an inexperienced company over big companies that existed in the industry at the time. And months later, I learned from his staff how it all happened that Ronald Reagan believed in entrepreneurism and the little guy. And he learned all about us and wanted to simply give us a chance. And that was the big turning point in our life and probably the one speaker that influenced our success the most. I'm personally a huge fan. My wife and I have three young sons, and our youngest son's name is Wentworth Reagan Miller, named after one of my favorite presidents. Uh, to our listeners and viewers, who for right now will put their politics aside, but whether or not they thought Ronald Reagan was a, 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 a great leader, I don't think anybody disputes he was a great communicator, known as the great communicator. What made Ronald Reagan's style so impactful, his speaking influential style? Well, I think he was he was had a great deal of empathy, I thought. I mean, you know, whether you agreed with his politics or didn't agree, from my perspective and from my knowing him, he had a tremendous amount of empathy. And he showed that empathy and loyalty. Um, uh, about a year after we started representing him, Margaret Thatcher came out and was going to be subjects of a great deal of interest from a lot of speaking agencies. And it happened on Thanksgiving Day. We tried to reach somebody on Thanksgiving Day, but couldn't. The next day, I got a telephone call from Ronald Reagan saying that he had talked to Margaret Thatcher and, and that she would wanted us to represent her. And throughout his career with us, uh, it was the loyalty that he had to us uh, starting out as a small company and then building in something larger that made the greatest impact on us. Harry, obviously the marketplace has shifted a lot since you signed Ronald Reagan and Prime Minister Thatcher. Fast forward, kind of agnostic through the generations of new technologies and hybrid virtual presentations and Zoom and things like that. From a principal standpoint, what are the tenets of what makes a great speaker? Well, I think it's um, it's the ability to com com communicate with the, with the person in the audience. Um, you can give up, get up and give a speech and read your speech, and it's but it's the ability to let the people in the audience understand what you're going through and for them to get a feeling that they understand in their from their own perspective how you went through it. I know when I talk about. Uh, our company and how we built our company, I try to, to express it in terms that uh, people in their own lives will understand the difference between success and failure and, and adversity. And so I think it's the, the whole idea, the whole success behind a speaker is the ability to communicate with the audience. And that, that basically means for them to, uh, to, com to get through the message so that people in the audience understand from their perspective, although they may not understand the lecture industry or they may not understand something about politics, the ability to put it everything in simple terms so that, so that everyone can understand it. Bernie, how does somebody come to know their own speaking style, whether or not their sweet spot is on a sofa with Q&A, or they should stand behind a podium, which I think is probably rare, or they should come out into the audience and, and engage the audience. Are there any like formulas that you might advise people to determine and decide? It may not be their preference, but it may be best how they are, they are presenting themselves. What are, what's some advice you would give on 
helping people find what their sweet spot is? It's a, I think it's one of the most difficult things in the world to give a speech. Um, the thing you have to understand is that you have to understand your own personality and, and, and what you're like. Um, you have to have a tremendous amount of confidence to get up there in front of other people and speak. And, and I think the ability is you just, you have to understand yourself first. You know, what am I like? If I move from the podium, and it's very hard to move from the podium because you use that as a crutch. And I think the people who move away from the podium are those people who have a tremendous amount of confidence and believe in themselves and can look, you know, can, can communicate completely with the people in the audience. Is there a particular speaker in your many decades as arguably one of the most successful, not, not, the, not the most successful speaking agent in the world, is there someone who you saw transform their style, probably for the better, hopefully, and are there any lessons from that person's uh, transformation? The, uh, I was in the middle of a competition to get Gene Kirkpatrick with another agency out of New York, and, and we failed doing that, and, um, and it was a kind of an embarrassing situation. So I, uh, I kind of said, I'm going to go away from the telephones for a while, and I'm going to go through some tapes of speakers, people have, that want to be speakers that have sent me tapes and hoping I'll look at the tapes. Among those tapes was one of Terry Bradshaw, and uh, I looked at the tape of Terry Bradshaw. He had been away from coaching, uh, from playing in, in the NFL for a while, and he was not on the lecture circuit. He had done one or two speeches, and, and I watched the tape, and I could understand why he wasn't being represented by an agency, because he stood by, behind the podium. He was reading something that had been written for him, something he really didn't believe in or wasn't passionate about. And so, um, but it was Terry Bradshaw, and we were at a situation, at a point in our careers when we needed speakers, so I invited him over to the office, and, and in, in the office, he was a big, large, oversized personality, and it was, it was contrary to the, the style he had speaking. So I said to Terry, I said, Terry, you just simply have to be yourself on the lecture circuit. Just get up there. Don't, don't read anything. Just tell stories, and he was, he was terrific at telling stories, uh, bigger-than-life stories, and they were stories about adversity and success and fun things that he'd gone through. So we sent him out on the lecture circuit, kind of not knowing what we would get, and Terry turned out to be one of the greatest speakers that I ever represented because he, was, he, he, would, he would be so animated when he was giving a speech that literally he would sweat through his sport coat or his suit ruining one good suit after another from the being a, one single speech on the lecture circuit. Bernie, what are some of the mistakes that even the most competent speakers make? Maybe give us three or four watchouts that if someone's going into the boardroom next week to pitch for a budget proposal or they're you know, marketing a new idea in their company or something like that or they're pitching a deck to investors, are there some mistakes that you think are generally easily remedied or avoidable as long as people are self-aware about them? Uh, that's a good question, uh, and I'm not sure I know how to answer the question, but uh, I will say that part of it is is having a great deal of confidence in yourself and, and knowing the subject matter and just being yourself. Um, you know, you you can't you can't get up there and write something down and read it and expect the audience to to think you believed in what you're telling them. 
So I, I think the, the situation is you, you have to have a strong confidence in what you're talking about and that you believe in. Uh, if you're giving a marketing strategy for your own company and you don't believe in it, then you know, obviously the people that you're trying to communicate it to are not going not gonna to believe it either. Uh, I mean, that's one of the keys you need for any speaker is you need to believe in what you're saying. You need to be convinced about what you're saying. And, and, and if you do that, then the audience will be convinced about the, the value of what you're saying. Let's talk about preparation. There's probably two schools of thought, right? One school of thought is, is be yourself, be extemporaneous, read the mood of the audience, go where their energy takes you. And another is, you know, basically plan your keynote out, know your stories, know your inflection points, time yourself. And I'm guessing all of us have probably flirted with both of those styles. Have you found that there's a set of circumstances or situations where someone might know, is it better to be a little more nimble and extemporaneous versus being a little more even overprepared, which I guess there's a downside to also. Take that wherever you'd like to go with that. I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think you, I think you have to go out there and, uh, and you have to, you have to communicate a certain amount of details. You have, when you're giving a speech, you have to say something, something that people come away with. At the same time, if you don't say it well, then they're not gonna come away with it. So, I mean, it's a combination of both. I don't think you, you can't go out there and just say, I'm gonna do it on the fly and I'm gonna, because it actually it never works. Uh, because because you're missing a lot of points that you could be making in the audience. I mean, you're getting up and giving a speech because you have certain things to say. So you need to say those things. But if you don't say them well, then the, the, the audience is, is not going to believe in what you're telling. Bernie, so many questions that people want to know about how to refine and develop their skill. What would you say are some good techniques of how people can improve their own speaking style? For example, I speak a lot um, around the nation and the world on the books that I've written, and every year I go to a, a theater in St. Louis. We rent the theater out, and my speech coach is back about 40 rows with a bullhorn telling me what I'm doing wrong and what she likes or doesn't like. Not everybody can rent out a 7,000-seat studio or, or, or theater. Are there some techniques or tips that you would advise people on how to work on their stories, their speaking style, their role plays, what, what, what advice would you give people on that topic? Well, if they can't do a 7,000 seat uh, uh, theater, then, then they can do it in front of their wife. They can do it in front of their friends. Uh, I mean, everybody's gonna be hesitant to, to do it in front of them, but if you can conquer uh, speaking to somebody that cares about you, uh, and, that, uh, and, then you, and you feel whenever I make a mistake, uh, I'm going to embarrass myself, and you can get over that feeling of that that you're going to go out there on the podium and that you're going to embarrass yourself. I think I think that that is a good substitute for what you do. Uh, just simply find talk your wife into it, talk your friends into it. I mean, it's a tremendous, amount, difficult thing to uh, to say I'm going to sit up and give a speech in front of my wife. I've tried it before. And I, and I watch the look on her face when, when I make a mistake or I say something that I shouldn't have said or I go in a direction, subject matter-wise, where, where I shouldn't. And uh, so I think it's as good and maybe even better than being in front of uh, 
uh, 700 people in a theater. We talked about building connection with your audience. You hear this all the time around, you know, they want to know something, feel something, and do something as a result of your speech. But it's also a really ethereal term. I mean, building connection with an audience, that's difficult, especially when the audience is different multiple times a week. How would you, how would you break down this otherwise nebulous concept? What, do you, what can everyone do to better understand how to connect with their audience? Is it, is it shaking hands beforehand and asking people what they expect to hear today? Is it doing research on the audience? What would you say they should do? I think, I think part of it is they, I, I think the first thing you have to do when you go out and do a, give a speech is that you, the audience needs to know who you are. So in, in the old days, it was always start out with a little bit of humor and, and, the, and the humor is always fine. Uh, but I think the big solution is to go out there and let them know who you are. Uh, I represent uh, James Carville and Mary Madeline, who are, a one's a Republican, one's a Democrat, but they're married to each other. And, uh, and I send James Carville out to conservative groups, or I used to, all the time. And James would get up and make fun of himself. Uh, not tell a joke, but make fun of himself. He would, he would go, get up there and say something about you know, the relationship between he and his wife, Mary. And opening your heart and your mind and, and letting people see who you are, I think is the, is the number one priority, the very first thing you ought to be doing so the audience kind of likes you. And I think that's the biggest thing to do. You probably have the world's most valuable Rolodex. And for those under 30, Google that. Let's talk about some of the people and stories you know about um, that drive from your Rolodex. Tell us something about Dave Barry. Well, I, I think Dave Barry is is just the 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 greatest thing about Dave Barry is his tremendous sense of humor and his and his belief that uh, that nothing makes any sense and that uh, and that that he's just everything's kind of every decision ever being made and everything about it is just arbitrary. I just, I think that's the biggest thing about Barry. How about Bob Woodward? Bob Woodward probably has one of the most um, prolific journalistic careers of anybody in our generation. You still see him frequently in the press and interviewing and writing books prolifically, especially about the most recent presidential election and administration. What would we find interesting about Bob Woodward? Well, uh, desire, tremendous desire to, um, uh, to know the story behind the story, I think uh, he, he is he is a, he's dogmatic when it comes to interviewing people. One of the best interviewers I've ever uh, ever heard, and um, um, I guess that's that's it. I haven't uh, I can't think of any other thing about him. I, I can't remember the story I wrote about him. It's been seven or eight years. These these clients are obviously all your friends. People like Judy Woodworth, Woodruff. Peter Uberoff, Willard Scott, Marilyn Retton, Colin Powell, Ted Koppel, Lou Holtz, Alan Greenspan, Robert Gates, Ben Carson, Madeline Albright. They come from both sides of the aisle. What do they have in common? Other than obviously spectacular careers, what do these people have in common that, you, that drew them to you, that you wanted to represent them? Because obviously some of them are Americans, some of them are entrepreneurs, some of them are lifelong public servants. What was the commonality you admired mostly in them? I think probably 99% of the people I represented were good people. Um, there are some exceptions to that. I represented uh, 
in, in the wake of 9-11, uh, Rudy Giuliani became the uh, America's mayor with a 79% approval rating. And, but Rudy Giuliani changed. But 99% of the people I represented were good and honest people. I was given a choice by, by the representative of, that was representing Bill Clinton and Madeleine Albright. Um, I was given the choice, if I had to choose between the two, who would I pick? Well, Madeleine Albright had long, long ago won my heart. I mean, she was a sweet lady who had a tremendous uh, sense of humor, um, I knew that uh, Bill Clinton would be greatly successful on the, on the speaking circuit, but I knew Madeleine Albright would be successful too. And what I, I picked Madeleine Albright because I had to pick between the two of them. Uh, and I did that because I, I was always looking for good people. The fortunate thing is that some of the very first people we represented, Alex Haley, who wrote Roots, uh, Lou Holtz, who was the football coach at Notre Dame, Jim Valvano, uh, uh, I represented people who had good character and were good and honest people who, and who taught me a lot. Alex Haley taught me about the importance of, of people and, and believing that the, the agency that I was running and the people that I was representing were actually a family. And that I, that's what started the book that I wrote that's, that's, that's your, uh, that you have in front of you talking about because he talked about everybody has their own story. So I think generally to answer your question, I'm going all over the place, but the answer to your question is that generally we look for good and honest people and, uh, and good and honest people brought us good and honest people. You know, people would say, recommend somebody else to us and, and that's how we decided who we would represent. Bernie, I want your opinion on the following five or six questions, kind of a speed round. I just want your gut instinct. There's lots of opinions, but I want your opinion on this. What do you think is the perfect length of a great speech? How long? Uh, 30, 35 minutes. Uh, visuals, no visuals, PowerPoint not. What's your, what's your instinct there? If you can do it fast, uh, visuals are great. Uh, but if you're going to rely totally on visuals and not the substance of the speech and not your own personality, then it doesn't work. What's your preference in terms of uh, someone speaking extemporaneously and then taking audience questions, having it be Q&A the entire time, what do you think resonates the most ubiquitously with audiences? I think it depends on how you're gonna end the speech. If you're a motivational speaker, uh, and you've just climbed uh, Mount Everest, for example, then I think questions and answers, when you're, when you're ending your speech on a high note, probably is contrary to the success of the speech. Uh, if, you're doing, if you're a political speaker where people are interested in and something about what's going on in politics or government, then I think questions and answers are good. Uh, but I would certainly always limit your questions and answers to about 10 or 15 minutes at the very most. Audience size, and I know you can't determine that as a speaker, but have you found that's, that there's a sweet spot in terms of the size of audience that tends to bring out the best in speakers? I think it's the first two or three rows. If you're close to, close to the audience, that's the key. You need to look somebody in the face and, and, uh, and be able to communicate directly to them. One of the good techniques is to pick somebody else up in the audience and actually speak to them. So, uh, you know, and obviously you're gonna move your head and, and look in different directions, but if you can speak to one person in the audience, that makes the speech a whole lot better. Do you have a preference on anecdotal stories 
versus like hard data and science and statistics? What do people tend to resonate the best with on that? Well, it depends on what kind of speaker you are, obviously, but I think always anecdotes are, are, are better. Um, you know, even metaphors are better than, than strategic. I think people get tend to lose lose somebody lose something in statistics. Uh, obviously, that's different if you're an economist and you're making a point depending on your audience. But at the same time, I think if you're going to relate to an audience, it's anecdotes are far better. Bernie, if someone is trying to build their speaking career, perhaps they're an up and coming author, maybe they're a content creator on social media they're looking for an agent, what's some advice you would give to someone who's trying to take their speaking presence to the next level? Number one thing is to have a videotape. If you don't have a videotape, there's no agency in the country that's gonna be interested in, in you. There's, they're not gonna take the chance. Uh, I think references are the second most important things you need to have. You can say, where have, I, where have you ever spoken before? And what was the reaction of the audience? And, and if I'm an agent, I certainly want to speak to somebody who, who has had you speak before. I also want to take a look at the video. Um, you know, and sometimes the video is contrary. I mean, sometimes you, you can see something in the video, like what I saw in Terry Bradshaw. Um, so, uh, so I think vi video is number one, references are number two. And it needs to be a good video with good lighting, good audio. Uh, so that you look professional. Um, I th it, it, you know, your speech can be great. If that video doesn't look good, then it doesn't work. How long should that, that video be? No, no more than 20 minutes. How has... Because well, I'm not going to look at anything more than 20 minutes. Uh, I can, in the first 10 minutes, I know whether you have something that I'm interested in or not. Yeah, I thought you would have said maybe four or five minutes. Interesting. Speaking of four or five minutes, how has the explosion of TED impacted the speaking business? You know, uh, years ago they used to think that uh, uh, satellites and video and Zoom would replace speaking and you know, it happened during the pandemic. So, um, so it did to a, to a degree replace people showing up in, in person. Um, I, think, I think TED's gone a long way in doing a lot of good for the lecture industry because it, it shows what good, it brings out people who normally you wouldn't be, that wouldn't be on the lecture circuit. Uh, it brings new talent to the lecture circuit. Um, it, 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 is, it is as good as the sending somebody a videotape to be able to do a TED speech uh, and for some agent to see the TED speech. Um, I guess that, that is the best thing for me. Who's the one that got away? Was there a politician or a celebrity or a, a athlete that you really wanted to land that you lost to a comp competitor? I lost, uh, well, obviously I lost Bill Clinton when I was given a choice between the two. Um, I, I, I went, when we were very first starting, uh, we would write letters to famous people and we wrote Jean Kirkpatrick, who was the first woman to be UN ambassador and she was the first woman to ever accept our invitation to let us meet with her. So we met with her and we thought we had reached agreement with her to represent her. And we went back uh, to our office, back from New York, back to Virginia. Uh, we called lecture, we called meeting planners and said, we represent Jean Kirkpatrick and, um, and put a list of invitations together. 
and uh, and sent them up to Gene Kirkpatrick. And then the next day we didn't hear anything. And then the next day we didn't hear anything. And then about three or four days afterwards, uh, me the meeting planners who we had given the invitations to got a got a call from another agency saying they represent Gene Kirkpatrick. Uh, probably one of the when you're first starting out in business to be embarrassed by meeting planners um, is is not the best thing that can happen to you. But that person got away, and it happened in a very that was that story was public made, uh, ended up in the magazine article and embarrassed us. Was there someone you took a risk on that you thought, you know what, this may not work out well, but it worked out phenomenally well over time? Who, who maybe, trans, other than Terry, who transformed your perception of them as maybe a high-risk bet, but it became a really smart decision? Boy, that's a good question. Um, you, you know, you just, um, you, you almost know ahead of time whether somebody's a good speaker. If, 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 you're, if you're considering a cabinet member or somebody in government or, somebody, or a journalist, um, you know, you know before you even make the decision to represent them that you know how well they speak. Because, yeah. uh, uh, you, and when we started out, we didn't know that. So, I mean, we would, we would, be interested in having somebody and they would turn out to be bad. Uh, but on the other hand, I can't think of anybody that, that other than Terry Bradshaw that uh, who really surprised us because you ended up having to do your homework. Otherwise, otherwise you can't send somebody out there risking that they're not going to do a good job. We did make mistakes on technical things. For example, when we were very first starting, we sent out Louis Rukeyser, who Wall Street Week, not knowing that Louis Rukeyser spoke for two hours, and we booked him for a dinner, and when the meeting planner got up in an hour and 15 minutes to kind of wave for him to stop, he continued speaking for another 45 minutes for the entire two hours. So, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure who we represented that surprised us other than Terry, but, we, but the life was full of a dozen mistakes over and over again. You and your wife sold the bureau, and you're spending your time between Massachusetts and Florida now, but you are working on something that might interest our viewers talk and listeners. Talk about your next literary project. Well, I did a story, uh, you know, about the original book was, was about uh, the other people we represent and the turning points in their lives. But the book I really always wanted to do, which I just couldn't get straight in my own head, I, I guess I was just too close to it, was our story. And... The story about uh, kind of a hero's journey, and while I'm not a hero, it's a journey where we started. We read an, uh, an article in Fortune magazine, in which uh, they interviewed the largest lecture agency in the world. And in the article, the the agent, the owner of the agency, said, "I don't have any competition." Back then, there was no internet, and and you know you you had no idea if if what he said was true or not. You took everything that was written as truthful. And I was assistant athletic director at a university at the time. I was about to become the athletic director. I was frustrated by bureaucracy. My wife read the article and said, you know, let's just try this because he has no competition. Uh, and so I quit my job just before becoming the athletic director. We started out in a stationary closet. There was just the three of us. 
Uh, we sent out uh, invitations to, uh, to speakers uh, and uh, 100 speakers we wrote letters to and eventually the responses started coming back. All the responses were bad. All of them said they were not interested. Most of them were from lawyers uh, saying this person is represented by this agency, don't write them again. And, uh, and it turned out that there were about 13 major agencies in the United States and what this, what this head of the largest agency meant when he said he has no competition was that I feel I'm so good that I don't feel anybody can compete against me. And so that's where, how we started. We started with no money doing that. Started in a stationary closet, as I said, and, um, and overcome mistakes like discovering that we were competing against 13 agencies as opposed to just one. This book is coming out when? Well, I don't know. I've got about one more month of finishing up writing on it, and uh, then I send it to the publisher. So um, uh, I don't quite know yet. Probably by the end of the uh, by fall. Well, we'll look forward to having you back on if you're interested. Bernie Swain, uh, founder of the most influential and largest speakers company in the world, Washington Speakers Bureau. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <music>